All right, all right. Well, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to jump in tonight with you and close out uh, our series in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, we have been walking and traveling through uh, for the last few weeks now these two letters that were written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And we know from the book of Acts, as we've been kind of traveling through the book of Acts, that Paul spent uh, three Sabbaths in Thessalonica, which means, uh, means that he spent about four weeks uh, with the Thessalonians. And his ministry there uh, was, was very fruitful in terms of uh, seeing people come to Christ and seeing people saved. Uh, although there was great persecution in Thessalonica, even some of the people uh, who harbored uh, the Apostle Paul and his crew uh, got in trouble with the city, ended up having to pay a tax. Uh, they, they were beaten. It was, it was a, a hostile environment for followers of Jesus in the city of Thessalonica. And the Apostle Paul, uh, as he had traveled into the city of Corinth, uh, was hearing reports about the church there. And, and those reports were actually really, really positive, which for the New Testament church was a good thing because a lot of times uh, things that reached Paul's ears were like problems and issues that they had to deal with. And so the Apostle Paul is writing uh, this letter to the church in Thessalonica, commending them for their path uh, following Jesus, for their faithfulness following Jesus. And uh, there were also some things that he needed to kind of help clarify and follow up on with the church in Thessalonica. Uh, one of the major uh, uh, trends that we see, or not trends, but the major themes that we see in First and Second Thessalonians uh, is, is this idea of following Jesus faithfully. But another major theme is the idea of what will happen at Christ's return. What will happen when Jesus comes back on the scene uh, to, to uh, establish his kingdom forever? What is that going to look like? What's that going to be like? How's that going to feel? And the Apostle Paul writes in the second book, the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there just yet. We're going to be all over the scripture tonight, but I'll just read this to you. Uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul addresses uh, this, this idea of the second coming of Christ and particularly something that they had kind of heard that was disturbing them. So let's listen to this. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the Thessalonians, probably sandals. Uh, put yourself in, in their, their spot for just a moment. They're enduring persecution. They're experiencing the fruit of the gospel, but it's hard and it's difficult. And they're experiencing this all the while people are telling them that they had missed the return of Christ. Now that would be quite unsettling. Uh, I grew up in a family of four and, uh, and my parents aren't the most organized. Um, my mom is just about as sweet as she comes, uh, as she could come, but she's just not real on top of the details. And uh, there are several incidents that have happened throughout the course uh, of our childhoods as children, most of which 
uh, you know, our, our surrounding uh, scarring events that uh, we were left behind. And uh, my brother, probably the quintessential event, my brother, um, we, we were on a family trip and uh, my, my dad and my mom and the four kids, we were all together. And uh, my mom's mom was there too. So my grandma was there as well. And we had been on a, a family outing and my parents' uh, vehicle broke down. And this was the day before, these are the days before cell phones, uh, AAA, any of that kind of help that you might be able to get. And, uh, and so they, they ended up hitchhiking with a semi-truck driver. Now, these were apparently simpler times. Uh, now, I don't know if that was okay even then, honestly. Uh, yeah, come on, semi-truck driver, take my family. Um, but they all stayed together and they went with this truck driver who was apparently extremely nice and drove my family all the way uh, to their neighborhood, to the entrance of their neighborhood. Of course, the truck couldn't get all the way in. Uh, they'd have taken a few oak trees with them or something. But, but this truck driver was so nice to do that. And, and as they piled out of the semi-truck and thanked the driver and the driver walked away, they get into the house and they realized, where's Mark? My older brother had crawled into the little compartment where the truck driver would sleep at night and, and fell asleep in his truck, which is kind of gross if you think about it. But my brother was still on the semi-truck and he had been completely left. The family was like in panic. And thankfully, my dad and mom had a working vehicle. So they left the, kid, the other kids with uh, my grandma, jumped in their car and ran after the, the semi. Thankfully, they were able to flag the semi down and get uh, my brother back. The driver was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And looking back, I wonder, you know. I wonder, did he, did he have an idea? Perhaps he did. I don't know. But we, we think it, it was just a, a mishap. Uh, my sister, Amy, got left in a Wendy's one time. Uh, it's Wendy's, you know, just getting her little frosty on and boom, family's gone. She'd been left behind. And uh, one morning as like a three or four year old, I awoke to my family all gone on a Saturday and I just woke up and I was like, uh, where are my family? <laughs> you know, where are they, where did they go? And and thankfully, we had a, a little collie dog. Uh, her name was uh, Peaches. It was kind of like Lassie. And uh, so I just remember hugging Peaches until my mom came home. They were probably like, yes, a break, uh, because I was a, a tough kid. Um, but I, I, I had this ingrained feeling kind of growing up of like, I don't want to get left behind. And it got actually much worse as I became a teenager. And the, the church that I was a part of, uh, particularly my youth group, uh, they were in the, kind of into this, this video series uh, that they used to play for us. I don't know why, but maybe to terrify us. Uh, they used to play these videos for us called A Thief in the Night. Has anyone ever heard of this uh, series? Yes. If, if uh, you were a Christian in the 70s, you may remember this, uh, but this was during kind of the Jesus movement. They had, uh, they had these, these videos that were done, A Thief in the Night. The basic premise was that this young woman uh, was married to a man who was a Christian. She was not a Christian. And she woke up one morning uh, to find that Jesus had returned and her husband uh, had been taken and she had been left behind. And the rest of the premise of the movie is her basically running from the one world government, trying not to get her head chopped off. It was scarring. Um, it was scarring for me as a teenage kid. It was like, you know, hey, happy Wednesday night. Go watch this movie. I was like, I can't sleep. Mom. But for me, uh, that, was a, that was a little bit of a rough experience. And I remember as a teenager thinking about the return of Christ, being a little bit freaked out by it. 
And, uh, and our culture, you know, has kind of been a, a continuing theme. How many of you guys have heard of the Tim LaHaye Left Behind books? Anybody uh, heard of those? My wife uh, was a teenager, was on her first ever flight uh, and flew to Australia. So she's away from home on her first ever flight, on an international flight during a summer exchange program. And the premise of the Left Behind book is this pilot uh, who is not a Christian, but, but the, the uh, coming of Christ happens, and he's trying to get, you know, uh, landed safely and all this kind of crazy stuff. Well, my, my wife, she's like a teenage kid at the time, is reading this book on her first ever international flight to Australia. Yes, terrifying and scarring, right? And, uh, and so they actually came out with some excellent movies um, with great acting. Uh, Kirk Cameron, in, in the year 2000, they came out with Left Behind. I think 32 people watched it. It was great. And, uh, and so a few years later, they thought, well, maybe we can, can we get a do-over on this movie. So they were like, let's get a great actor. So in 2014, Nick Cage was the star of uh, Left Behind. And my wife and I watched it the other night just for message prep. And uh, had, had we not been like legitimately committed to this just, you know, for, for your benefit, we would not have made it through. Uh, it was just bad acting, sketchy theology, worse acting, right? Terrible. And, uh, and, I, and really the reality is, is that uh, our culture is, it, it is actually pretty interested in this idea of what would happen during the apocalypse? What would happen during Armageddon? Anybody remember May 20th? 21st, 20, what was it, 2012, wasn't it? Yeah, the mind calendar is ending, and the apocalypse is coming, and the world is over, and, 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 and many of these things turn out to be, you know, a farce. And so the Thessalonians, they were pretty worried, because what had began to stir among them was that the day of the Lord had already happened, that Jesus had already returned, and that they had been left behind, which would have been incredibly discouraging since they were being beaten for their faith. Am I right? And so Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica to correct this error, but also to encourage them not to be worried because the truth is that the coming of Christ is unmistakable. Let's uh, grab our Bibles. If you've got one of the Mosaic Bibles, it's on page 641. Uh, we're going to go to the book of 1 Thessalonians where Paul begins to uh, write to the Thessalonians about the coming of Christ. It's on page 641, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul writes to them uh, concerning the day of the Lord, and he says, uh, he begins in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 by saying, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, right? So there's that foreboding thief in the night. It still sends like shivers down my spine. It's like Mufasa, and like, Ugh, you know? Who will come like a thief in the night. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, uh, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So it's sounding a little bit foreboding so far. Am I right? He's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be like labor pains for a pregnant woman. Everyone's going to be like peace, peace, security, no big deal. But then all of a sudden, the day of the Lord is going to come and there will be no escape, which sounds pretty concerning, right? But he gives us a piece of, of a glimmer of hope in verse 4, some good news in verse 4, and he says this. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. 
So Paul begins to encourage the people of Thessalonica saying, look, you who are brothers in Christ, you who are followers of Jesus, you who have your faith put in Jesus for salvation ought not to be concerned about the coming of the Lord that you might miss it. You ought not to be terrified about the coming of the Lord as if this calamity is going to fall upon you because you are not children of the darkness. You are children of the light. And he begins to encourage them. And beyond this, Jesus actually taught on his second coming. In Matthew chapter 24, we're going to go there. But Jesus said, look, when I come, it's going to be unmistakable. You won't miss it. Let's turn to page 538, Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to hear Jesus uh, teach about his second coming. Now, Jesus is, is uh, talking about kind of what the atmosphere is going to be like, what's going to be going on on planet Earth uh, surrounding his coming. And towards the end of that uh, that that uh, discourse, uh, Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 29, he says this, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. Now these seem like major events, do they not? Right? Be tough to miss. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth, so this is a worldwide event, all the tribes, every people group, every language, every tongue, every ethnicity on planet earth, all of the tribes of the earth will mourn because they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Does this sound like an event that we might just kind of miss somehow? No, this is going to be a very obvious event. We're talking about dark sun, dark moon, stars falling from the sky. This is some serious stuff. And, and, and what, what Jesus is explaining to us as his followers, as his disciples, is that we are going to understand, we are going to know, this is not going to catch us by surprise. And what Paul continues to do to the Thessalonians is say, hey, remember what Jesus said about his coming? This is going to be a major event. And though the world will not be able to catch on to this reality because they're so uh, you know, involved in their own lives, so full of their own uh, peace and provision and prosperity, the world will miss it. But you, brothers of the light, no way. You're not going to miss it. You see, the danger for us as followers of Jesus is not that we would miss the second coming of Jesus. That's not the danger at all. That's not the concern at, at, at any bit. Not, not at any point is that the concern. Here's the concern. And Jesus is about to unpack this uh, for us, and we're going to go there. But the concern for us is not that we would miss the second coming. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is on page 641. Going back and forth a little bit, getting our Bible drill on. It's good. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Paul continues after saying, you are not of the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Here's what he says in verse 5. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, okay, what does that mean for us? So then, 
Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. You see, the, the danger for us as followers of Jesus is not that we would miss the second coming of Christ. The danger for us as followers of Jesus is that we would waste our life in peace and comfort and slumber. That's the danger. He's saying, be, be sober, be alert, be ready. The, the day is coming and you should not be surprised at its coming. And not only will you not miss it, but here's the, here's the reality. We don't want you to waste your life in the meantime. So there's the confidence that we won't miss it, but the sobriety that he is coming and that matters deeply. As Jesus continues, we're going to go back now to Matthew chapter 25. As Jesus continues his discourse about his second coming, Matthew chapter 25 is going to be on page 539. As Jesus continues this discourse about his second coming, he tells three stories, three very important stories that help us understand what our posture must be as followers of Jesus as we await the second coming of our Lord. Check this out. First off, he tells this story called the parable of the ten virgins. And the story basically goes like this. There are uh, ten virgins that are awaiting the bridegroom to come to them. And this is a picture of Christ as the bridegroom and the virgins as the church. The Christ, uh, the Christ bridegroom is coming for his church. And these, these, uh, these ten virgins, five of them are wise and five of them are are foolish. The wise virgins go out and they know that it's going to be nighttime and the bridegroom may be delayed. So they took their lamps with them and their lamps not only filled uh, with oil, but also with additional oil in case the bridegroom is delayed for backup so that they don't have to go away and miss the bridegroom's return. So the five wise virgins go out and they are prepared, but the foolish virgin, virgins are not prepared. They're not ready. They go and, and their lamps burn out, so they have to run back for more, or, more oil. And that is when the bridegroom comes, and they're surprised. And what, what Jesus is illustrating for us is that, that, the, that, that he, as our groom, is coming back for us. That we are his bride, and we ought to wait in faithful anticipation for his return. This is beautiful picture that marriage is actually invented to tell. Like the whole purpose of marriage is for us to understand that our God in heaven loves us as a groom loves his bride. And that we as a faithful bride ought to wait in anticipation for the day that he comes for us. I got married three months ago, been the best three months of my life, and, and soon, because I feel as though I am a marriage expert now, I'll be having a marriage conference. You can sign up with the blue shirts after. Uh, no, just kidding, not at all. Still, still very new at this, uh, but it's been, it's been awesome. And as Lauren and I, my wife and I, were preparing to be married, we would text each other back and forth like, hey, this many days, we actually downloaded a countdown app on our phone, so we knew exactly how many days, hours, minutes, and seconds seconds it would be until we were married. And we were excited and we were anticipating that day when we would be joined together in marriage, lifelong covenant here on this earth to glorify God. What an awesome thing. Now what would have happened if 
March 8th, 2015 rolled around, which by the way, if you're looking for like an anniversary present, we're reg- I'm just kidding. Uh, March 8th, 2015 comes around and I text Lauren and I say, hey, are you ready? And she says, for what? Are, are you ready? I, today's the day. Oh no, I was just thinking I was going to binge some Netflix. But we're getting married today. Uh... Yeah, okay, I guess I'll get rid. I suppose, right? How heartbreaking would that be for me as the groom? And how absurd does that sound to us? For, for, for a bride to just be flippant about her wedding day seems so unheard of for us. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to feel about his return. That here we are counting down the days until we meet Jesus face to face. And so what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 25 in this first story with the 10 virgins is I want you to be ready. I want you to be anticipating my return. He continues on and he tells uh, this parable of the talents. And talents are not like so you think you can dance type talents. Uh, they are, it's, a, it's a actually a, a, a money increment. So it's, um, it's like dollars. So the parable of the dollars. So he gives uh, some, some, some uh, talents to these three different servants. The first servant he gives five talents to. And the master gives the talents to the servant. Says I'm going to go away. And when I come back I want you to, to have invested my talents. So he gives five to the first servant. He gives three to another servant. And he gives one to a third servant. So one has five, one has three, and one has one. And the master goes away, and upon his return, he goes back to the servant to, uh, to uh, collect, to see what the servant had done. And the first servant says, hey, master, you gave me five servants. Here's five more. I, I went and I invested. I was wise. And here you go. I've got 10 talents for you. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he goes to the second servant with three talents. And this servant has three talents uh, more to give to the master. And the master says, wow, I give you three talents and you got me three talents more. Well done, good and faithful servant. And he goes to the third servant who he had only given one talent in the first place to and He says, what have you brought me? And the third servant says, I just have your original talent that you gave me. And the master said, why didn't you you invest and and get more? Why didn't you at least give it to a banker and get some interest for me? And the the servant replied, well, I knew you were a hard man and you were were cruel and I didn't really trust you. and, And so I just buried the one talent that you gave me so that I would at least not have lost your talent, that I would at least have the one talent you gave me back. And the master said, you worker of iniquity, depart from me. Jesus has given you and I lots of resources. Lots of resources. He's given us time and he has actually given us talent. Like some of you can dance. I don't understand it, but some of you can. He's given you time and talent and resources He's given you uh, opportunities to invest what you have into the kingdom of God for an eternal purpose. 
And one day he is going to have a a moment of reckoning with us where he's going to say, what did you do with the talent that I gave you? What did you do with the time that I gave you? What did you do with the resources that I gave you? Did you invest those resources into the kingdom knowing that I would be returning? And he tells a third story. He tells the story of the final judgment. And he talks about a farmer who has sheep and he has goats and he separates the sheep and the goats. And the sheep in this story represent those who believe in Jesus and the goats represent those who do not believe in Jesus. And Jesus addresses the sheep and has this interesting conversation with his followers, the sheep. And I think it's such a beautiful picture. He goes to the sheep and he says, well done, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And and when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the sheep are kind of like scratching their head. They're like, I don't remember that. And Jesus said, they asked, they said, I don't remember that. Like, when did we feed you, Jesus? When did we clothe you? When did we give you, when do we visit you in prison? We don't remember you being in prison. Like, Jesus, we don't remember doing these things for you. And Jesus said, oh, but when you did those things to the least of these, you did it to me. You did it to me. And what Jesus is saying is that, that he wants us to be ready for him, like those virgins. He He wants us to utilize all of the opportunity and the resources that we've given him in order to invest into the kingdom. And that whenever we give of ourselves to the least of these, it's like we're doing that directly to Jesus. When we adopt that child or we we step into that prison ministry or when we go volunteer with Matthew's Hope or New Beginnings and, and we, de- we decidedly live on mission with the gospel for those who are less fortunate than us who need the gospel to be preached not only in word but also in deed. When we step into those stories, those life on mission stories that we talk about here so often at Mosaic, when we step into those, it's not just about that adopted child and his story being changed. It's not just about that prisoner who's actually was for real wrongly accused that you get to encourage in their faith. It's not about that homeless person that just needs some some guidance and some help to get back on their feet, or perhaps that homeless person who will never get on their feet, but just need to be loved. See, For us, it's not even about just those people. It's about the fact that those people bear the image of God and that when we love those people, it's just like we're loving Jesus himself for the sake of it. Just love these people because Jesus loved you and he loved me. And our only right response to that is to love the least of these. So Jesus tells these three stories on the heels of all of the events that would surround his second coming. And he's saying, I want you to be ready. I'm going to give you resources and I want you to use them for the kingdom. I'm going to give you this opportunity to do amazing things and love the least of these. And I want you to do it. Because one day we're going to meet face to face. And the danger is not that you're going to miss my coming. Oh No, it's not the danger at all. The danger is that you might waste your life during the waiting. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica, saying, no, be faithful. Be faithful. Back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul continues his thought. Again, that's on page 642, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 15, Paul continues his thought. He's encouraging them to stand firm. And he says in verse 15 of 2 Thessalonians 2, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. The traditions that Paul is talking about there are the gospel traditions, the, the, the good news traditions, these things that, that they learned from the apostle Paul about what Jesus did for them, that Jesus put on human flesh, that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he resurrected from the dead. Paul is saying, hold on, hold fast to these things that we have taught you. Because they matter deeply in, in terms of your ability to live faithfully for Christ. He says, hold fast to these traditions, either by spoken word or by letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, he says in verse 16, and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. What Paul is saying is that what, what the gospel does for and in us, what the good news of Jesus does for and in us, is it takes this temporary life that we live that we think is so important, and it elevates and transcends that monotonous uh, temporary life and puts the seed of eternity into our hearts to blossom. See, what Paul is saying is that, that because of the gospel, what, what the Father has done for us is he has given us eternal comfort. Have you ever been in a circumstance that you just wanted out of? What, what, what about uh, sickness? What about disease? What about poverty? What about relational strife? Those situations we find ourselves in, those circumstances that we find ourselves in, a mental illness, a struggle that we're like, what is going on? I just don't see a way out. What Paul is saying is that the gospel gives us an eternal comfort. And beyond an eternal comfort, hope. And what Paul is writing to the Thessalonians is this, that if we can fix our eyes on, on Jesus and the fact that he is returning someday, and even if not in our own lifetime, but the fact that we may pass from this life into the next and we will meet Jesus face to face, that should set eternity in our, in our hearts in such a way that it'll change the way we live here and now. See, if we recognize that this life is not the only life that we live, but this is just as C.S. Lewis wrote, the preface or the cover page for the chapters of lives that we will live, uh, the chapters of life that we will live in the new creation, we understand that this is just the preface. This is just the beginning. This is just the opening up of the story. And what we do in this life echoes in eternity. Great movie, Gladiator. That's a quote from the great theologian Maximus Aurelius. But what we do in this life 
truly echoes in eternity. See, what the Apostle Paul is trying to help the Thessalonians understand and what Jesus is trying to help us understand through these stories is that he is coming back. And we need to be ready. He's given us resources to be spent for his kingdom. And that whatever we do for the least of these, it's like we did it to him. And Jesus will reward. Jesus will reward. Paul writes to the, uh, the church in Corinth, and this is actually where he is. He's in Corinth as he's writing to the Thessalonians. If you want to turn to page 619, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul tells this, gives this beautiful uh, yet sobering picture of eternal reward in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Paul says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. What is the foundation? Which is Jesus Christ, the gospel. What Paul wrote about in Thessalonians, hold fast to the gospel. He is our foundation. Christ is our foundation. Verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that means the, the, the judgment day, the, the end of, of days, the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What a sobering thought. And what Paul is trying to help us understand is that the life that we live, this Matthew 25 life, the life of readiness for our bridegroom, the life of, of investment of the resources that God has given us, the life of doing to the least of these as if it were Christ himself, that that life will be rewarded. And everything that we lay on the foundation of the gospel, now again, this, isn't, this has nothing to do with salvation. In fact, Paul even says they'll be saved as escaping through fire. But this, this work that Paul's talking about, the precious stones that he's talking about, are all of the things that we do in response to the gospel for the glory of God. And what Paul is saying is that Christ will reward it. He won't forget it. But everything that we do that is more concerned with this life than the next, everything that we do for our own selfish gains, even if it's built on the foundation of Christianity, built on the foundation that Jesus lived and died for me and I'm going to go to heaven, that it's going to just be burned up like chaff. And it's a sad thing. And we'll, we'll make it into heaven. That's not the issue. But it's, it's like as, as just escaping through the fire. And, and I don't know about, about you. But for me, I, I want to receive the reward that God has laid out for me. See, he's invited us into this gospel life. 
this life of being ready for the bridegroom. He's invited us to use the resources that we've been given. He's invited us to do to the least of these as we would to him. The invitation is there. It's not a requirement for salvation. It's not a requirement for heaven. Faith in Jesus is the only requirement for salvation. And the foundation is Christ himself. But man, I tell you what. One day I'm going to meet Jesus face to face. I'm going to meet him face to face. Either he's going to be riding on the clouds and some crazy junk just went down on the earth, right? And it's going to be wild. Or I'm going to pass from this life to the next like the last 2,000 years of Christians have done. But either way, there will be a day when I meet Jesus face to face. And the life that I live here on this earth, I live with that day in mind. Now Paul's been writing to the Thessalonians about living a faithful Christian life. How do you live a faithful Christian life? <laughs> Keep that day in mind. See, in this life, there are some things I enjoy hearing. I like when my boss tells me, good job. I like hearing that. I like when my wife says, I think you're smoking hot. It's awesome. I like that. I enjoy that. She was here during the 1117, so I'm hoping she's going to apply the word of God to her life and the preaching. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I enjoy that. I like it. I like when you say good sermon at the end of my sermon. I don't care that much. If you didn't like it, just email Renault. It's fine. But here's the thing. There, there's, there's, there's a sentence that supersedes all of those things. The good jobs from your boss, the, the I love you's from your spouse, the you're the greatest from your son or your daughter. And those of you with teenagers know those are few and far between, right? There are some sentences we enjoy hearing in this life, and it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not wrong. But I'll tell you, there's one sentence I want to hear more than any sentence that's ever been uttered on this planet. And I want to hear what the guy with the talents got to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's it. That's what I want to hear. That's what I, I don't want to hear my financial advisor say, you've got plenty to retire. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful. So retirement's not bad. It's not wrong or evil. But do you see how it pales in comparison? And what Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and Jesus is, is proclaiming in the book of Matthew to us is that there is a life that's more real than the life we live today. And it's not broken. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no more weeping, no more hurt, no more pain. He's gonna hold us. And on that day, I just wanna hear, well done. Well done, son. Well done, good and faithful servant. May we live as a church in a way that we would hear those words from our master on that day. Let's pray together. God, we're just grateful for you. And we recognize tonight that you are our hope. You are our comfort. And that everything that we experience in this life that's hard and difficult or even wonderful and good pales in comparison to the eternity that we have with you. Jesus, we're grateful for that. I pray that as we close out the book of 
1 and 2 Thessalonians, as we understand this theme of faithfulness that the Apostle Paul continues to write about in those letters, I pray that we would understand it in the context that Jesus, one day, we're going to meet you face to face. And that in light of that day, faithfulness becomes a natural byproduct. God, we're grateful for you. Thank you for the hope that we have found in the good news of the gospel. Thank you that our works do not determine our destination. I pray, God, that you would help us to live lives that are faithful and that deserve a reward. Jesus, we recognize that you are our ultimate reward, and we're grateful for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.